The book of Nehemiah, the memoirs of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we'll be at today. Um, Nehemiah has a huge backstory. Uh, there's a lot happening. Uh, uh, it's told in the books of Haggai and Zechariah. Uh, it's told in the book of Chronicles, in, in uh, uh, 2 Kings chapter 25. And if you want to know all the backstory, which I really encourage, go online. Our teaching uh, from two weeks ago will we'll fill you in and, and bring you up to date. What you need to know from Nehemiah chapter 1 is that Nehemiah is heartbroken. Uh, uh, he's the... He's the, uh, he's the ugly cry. You know the ugly cry? <laughs> it's not the pretty dainty like this cry, but you know, the one that makes you look ugly and the snot and the whole, like that's Nehemiah. Nehemiah is, is in deep mourning for Jerusalem, for, for the people of Israel, because he knows they're a hair's breadth away from extinction. And, and out of the, the depth of his, uh, his ugly cry, deep emotion, for Israel, uh, for Jerusalem, Nehemiah says a prayer. I had a great guy from Ethos Church come and just do an awesome teaching for us last week about Nehemiah's prayer in chapter 1. He, he kind of modeled it out for us, a, a prayer that begins with remembering who God is, stating who God is first, and then repenting of our own sins, and then to do this again and again and again. I love in, in the prayer, Nehemiah reminds God of his covenant people. Nehemiah says, man, our, I've sinned. Not just our people have sinned. I've sinned. My family has sinned. But we have a covenant with you, a long-lasting covenant. And when we return, you said, you will bring us back. And so Nehemiah evokes this great memory of, from God, this covenant reminder, says this passionate, desperate prayer. And in verse 11 of chapter 1, he says, Oh Lord, please hear my prayers. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please Grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. In those days, and what it means is Nehemiah was the lowliest of the low. He is an exile living far away from his home, far away from his country, far away from his people, living under the pagan king's rule, a Persian king named Artaxerxes. He worked in the king's house, but he was nothing more than a servant. But he knew if he was going to restore Jerusalem, if he was going to uh, bring God's people back from the brink of extinction, he was going to need the king's favor. And so he prayed for it. And that's where our story picks up. Let's read together in, uh, in chapter 2, the first eight verses. Go ahead and put those on the screen. It says, early the following spring in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign, uh, incidentally, this is four months after his prayer. He's been praying and mourning and grieving for four months. Nehemiah says, I was serving the king his wine, and I'd never before appeared sad in the king's presence. Probably not a good idea. So the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick. You must be, what are those two words? Deeply troubled. Then I was terrified. But I replied, long live the king. How can I not be sad? For the city where my ancestors are buried is in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. The king asked, and this is so important, what's the king say? Well, how can I help? What was Nehemiah's prayer? That the king would be favorable 
And with a quick prayer to God, uh, I love this scene in Nehemiah. It's, it's almost like an athlete taking the field, you know, that one last look. Okay, God, just, just a reminder. With a prayer to God of heaven, I replied, if it please the king, and if you are pleased with me, your servant, send me to Judah to rebuild the city where my ancestors are buried. Don't send somebody else, send me. And the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, well, how long will you be gone? When will you return? And after I told him how long I would be gone, the king agreed to my request. That's, uh, you should highlight that part, part in your Bible. The king agreed to my request. The, 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 the cupbearer, the, the, he's the royal dog walker, all right? And yet the king agrees to his request. And I also said to the king, if it pleased the king, now he's going to get really bold. Just a couple of extra things. Let me have a letter addressed to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, instructing them to let me travel safely through their territories on my way to Judah. And please give me a letter. Also, give me a letter addressed to Asaph, the manager of the, the king's forest. You know, because if I'm going to build this walls in the city, I'm, I'm going to need stuff. So instruct him to give me timber. I will need it to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress, for the city walls, and for a house for myself. And the king granted these requests because the gracious hand of God was on me. Now, that's just a few eight verses, but man, there's a, there's a powerful, powerful story that happens there. I want to begin with the king recognizes when he sees Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah, it's, it's not a, ever a good idea to, to appear uh, sad or downtrodden in front of your boss, especially when you're your, your boss has a, like a, 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 what's the guy that cuts people's heads off? You know, that, that dude with the black mask and all that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's got an executioner. So it's always good to be happy in front of the king. But in, Nehemiah is so overwhelmed with his feelings for his people that, that he, he can't help himself. It, it just bleeds through him. Have you ever had that, that such deep emotion? You can't hide it. it just, you just wear it on your face, and just, as good as you try to cover it up, people can recognize, hey, what's wrong? And the king sees Nehemiah and says, this guy must be deeply troubled. I hear that sentiment in, uh, in, our, in our country a lot, in our, in our nation a lot, uh, this uh, deeply troubled uh, de- de- depression that, that kind of hangs like a cloud on our country, on our nation sometimes. Uh, did you guys know that the United States of America uh, uh, is, is the largest user of antidepressants in the world? Based on, based on population, same population, we are the number one user. In fact, the, the estimates are one in 10 people are actively using antidepressants um, that includes teenagers, by the way. And if you're a woman over the age of 40, that number drops to one in four. We are a deeply troubled nation. Uh, I wanted to find out who else was on this list. You know who, who number two is uh, for the most uses of uh, most users of antidepressants by by percentage rate of uh, population. You know who number two is? Can you guess? Anyone want to guess? Not Great Britain. You're never going to guess. No, not Australia. It's Iceland. 
And I, and I thought about this. This actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, the, <laughs> I looked it up. The highest temperature ever recorded in Iceland, ever in the history of recorded temperature, is 86. <laughs> it is a land of cold and ice and darkness. That We need to be sending them all the antidepressants we can. I mean... It makes, it makes perfect sense to me that they're, anti, they're, they're depressed. But, but why are Americans, why are we deeply troubled? And, and I know you, you could probably give a lot of answers of, well, immigration, economy, 401K, Social Security, welfare, violence. You know, all the answers are around every water cooler in America. But the big one right now is, and you can tell me, what is it? Who is going to be our next president? I love what George Carlin said. He said, um, he said in America, anyone can be president. And, and that's the problem. Um, um, the USA, I, I, I run into it all the time. It just seems like, like people are deeply troubled. But I wonder, are, are we troubled about the right things? During the time of, of Ezra and Nehemiah, the, the people of God are in exile. They, they've been completely uprooted from their homes, from their culture, from their country. They've been shipped off to be slaves uh, in, a, in a different kingdom, in a foreign land, under the control of pagan kings who have no loyalty or allegiance to, to Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, whatsoever. Yet, do you remember Nehemiah's prayer? His prayer is that the king would be favorable to his request, a request which is basically, hey, uh, we don't want to be your slaves anymore. We'd like to go back and do our own thing and rebuild our own nation. Would you think that'd be okay? This is a big ask. Uh, and if you read uh, uh, Ezra, uh, we've got reading guides. We want you to be reading along. There's so much backstory. There's so many other things happening here outside of Nehemiah that contribute to this story. But if you've been reading Ezra, you will see that the king that Nehemiah is serving, the royal dog dog walker for, right? King Artaxerxes, the king he is serving, the king he is praying for a favorable response from is the same king who has halted all the work and restoration in Jerusalem. Did you guys pick up on that? Did you see that? The very king he serves is responsible for the current condition of Nehemiah's own heartbreak. Artaxerxes is the one responsible for, the, for Jerusalem not being rebuilt, for the walls not being rebuilt. Now are you seeing, getting a picture of why Nehemiah's ask is such a big ask? Because King Artaxerxes already said, you know, that's a rebellious city. We're not going to rebuild it. And yet Nehemiah's prayer is make the king change his mind. Not only does this king not have any, King Artaxerxes not have any allegiance to God, but his ask is that the king would restart a work he already stopped. 
And I think maybe that's the reason uh, when uh, the king says, are you deeply troubled? And the, the first response from Nehemiah is, I was terrified to ask him. But what's the truth? It's a story, it's a narrative told again and again and again in Scripture. It's told again and again and again in the Old Testament. The truth is, is that who is king at the time has absolutely zero bearing. I want you to hear this. Who's king at the time has no bearing on the will and activity of God. Are you with me? We see it in Ezra, in the very first chapter of Ezra, the the Babylonian king, King Cyrus. It says that God stirs in King Cyrus's heart. And what does King Cyrus immediately do? King Cyrus immediately writes a decree that he sends out to his whole kingdom saying, you know, all these Israelite folks, I know they're, they're your slaves and all that kind of stuff. I want you to send them home. And, and on the way, you know, they're going to be hungry and they're going to need stuff. So why don't you give them gold and silver out of your own pockets? And, and by the way, all that stuff we stole and took from the temple when we defiled it, all of those gold pillars and lampstands, all those sacred objects, we're going to give those back too. And where did it start? Is Cyrus a, 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 a faithful follower of Yahweh? No. But it says that God stirred his heart. And here again, when Nehemiah asks, the king impossibly replies. Do you get the weight of this? When, when King Artaxerxes, the head of the largest empire in the world at this time, says to his cupbearer, sure, how can I help? Nehemiah knows that that is a direct result of the action of God. Nehemiah knows that this is only possible because he will say later, the hand of God is upon him. And there's an important reminder for us. There's an important reminder for deeply troubled Americans Too many of us who who live under the name Christians live as if the one who sits on the Supreme Court really has some sort of power. Too many of us live and breathe like like the next elected official is really going to be the one who, who has power and is going to be able to rule and have authority. When what's the reality? Rulers powers, authorities of this world are nothing more than finger puppets to the God of heaven. Can I get an amen? Amen. Kings and kingdoms bow down before him. Are you with me? I've got this pastor friend. I don't want to give you his name because you might uh, not like what he said, but... um, we were talking about the election and all this kind of stuff going on in our country and deeply troubled. And, uh, and he told me, he said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm praying for the worst candidate to, to get elected. Now, I'll let you determine who that is. <clears throat> and I said, okay, why would you do something like that? And he said, because the more adverse, the more impossible the conditions, 
the more significant and impressive the display of God's power will be. God has this way of, of working that says, you think that's impossible? Hmm. You think that's opposition? God says, watch this. God is the king of the underdogs and the master of the unexpected. Who does he use to, to uh, 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 work his divine will in this story? Does he work through the awesome, mighty power of the Persian king, ruler of the, the largest kingdom in all of the earth? No. He uses Nehemiah, the king's servant. All right, so I, I've got some important stuff today, and it's going to hit you kind of heavy. But I want to talk to our senior adults especially. So senior adults, uh, wake the one up next to you. Um, <laughs> Um, most of you have seen our country, and, and when I talk to you about, you know, where we're at today, it's, it's, it's kind of a grieving and sense of loss, and, and, and it's just tough, and, and I, get, I very much get this picture of, well, it hasn't always been this way, and, and kind of like we're in this, we're, we're kind of in this decline, but I want to speak to you specifically senior adults, and, I, and what I want to tell you is don't let your fear remove God from his throne. Don't let your fear remove God from his throne. And, and I, I don't mind if you express your concern for, for our country. I think that's appropriate. But at the same time, let's remind everyone we meet of exactly who God is and our other utter faith in him to will and to work. Let go of being deeply troubled. Let go of being depressed. And let's grab onto Jesus Christ again. This past week, uh, I got to be at a conference at um, Church of the Highlands. Do you guys know Church of the Highlands? Uh, church of the Highlands is a, a, is a church plant that started in Alabama uh, about 15 years ago. Uh, came from Colorado, wanted to plant a church, really wanted to reach, uh, reach Alabama. And in the last 15 years, that church grew from zero to more than 40,000. They have more than a dozen campuses spread all over. They're in every prison and jail facility throughout the state of Alabama. They're doing an incredible, incredible work. Their pastor is a, is a, is a great guy. He's, he's hilarious. He's way funnier than I am. But uh, his name is Chris Hodge, and uh, he, uh, he set up this event just to, just to speak with, with pastors. And one of the things I, I really love about Church of the, of the Highlands is that it's not all about them. They, they really get a clear picture. Even though they're a church of 40,000, they could do anything they wanted. They get a clear picture of this kingdom picture. Hey, it's always bigger than us. And so they set up this initiative where their church wants to help a thousand churches reach a thousand. So all of their resources, everything they offer is available to other churches because they see this greater kingdom picture. Like, isn't that, I, I think that's pretty cool. That's the first church I've heard of doing something like that. And uh, so I was at this conference and uh, 
uh, Chris Hodge, their, their lead pastor, was there, and uh, there were 3,000 other, other ministers, pastors from, from around uh, the mostly Alabama, uh, but, I, but I had a free ticket to go, and uh, um, Pastor Chris, he was just talking about their, their, their vision and their direction and, and kind of their purpose as a church, like, like why do you exist, and, and he told this story. Um, he came from uh, uh, Colorado, and he told this, this really interesting story about, uh, believe it or not, Colorado has the largest population of witch covens in the U.S. I don't know why that is. Um, but yeah, witchcraft apparently is this big deal in Colorado. And, and every year, uh, uh, I don't know a good number, but oftentimes kids will go missing because they're being used in some sort of crazy, weird, pagan satanic rituals or something like that. And so if you go to Colorado, keep your, just kind of keep your kids close. And uh, Chris told, the, he tells the story of uh, he's in Vail, Colorado with his family. He's had, he has five kids, but his youngest son is autistic. And when his, uh, uh, when his youngest son was, I don't know, junior high, preteen age, uh, his youngest son doesn't have the ability to, to, to speak or really communicate very well. And so the whole family, just they're in Vail and they're enjoying their time and they're kind of going from shop to shop to shop down, the, down a row. And they leave out of a Starbucks and the family goes into the next store. And it doesn't take very long, but they, they realize that their youngest son, his youngest son, his autistic son, isn't with them. And so, you know, they get nervous and they kind of go back to that last spot. And what, what they believe ended up happening was that while the family went out and kind of went one direction, this, their youngest kind of went out and went the other direction. I know, parents, you, you kind of know how this happens, right? So they were with a big group of people of maybe uh, 12 or 15 people, and everyone just kind of, okay, search pattern. Let's grid this thing out. You know, everyone gets into this mode, and everyone begins to, to search, and you go that way, and I'll go this way, and uh, he, he, he talks to a security guard that has a radio and, uh, you know, he says really unhelpful things. And, and so they're all running around. And he said, uh, it, it, takes about, it takes about 25 minutes. And it, it, it's at this point in, the, uh, in his teaching and telling the story, Chris said just this last week, he just completely broke down. Just completely lost it. Because in... In those 25 minutes, like he just, he can't tell that story and not be in that place. Maybe you've lost your kids or grandkids or you, you know that feeling. It took about 25 minutes and he saw, he saw his son kind of, kind of on a bridge, kind of, kind of far out. And, and there were other people around him, but you could tell the look on his face because he's autistic. And he, didn't, he didn't have the ability to kind of communicate like how lost he was. Does that make sense? And they, they, they found him, and when he saw him, he, he wrapped him in his arms. And he just, he used that story to, to, to say, this is what Church of the Highlands is all about. A complete and utter desperation for the lost. Jesus tells some parables about pursuing that lost thing. Um, you guys remember these? He, he, he tells three parables about lostness right in a row. He tells a parable about a lost sheep and says, what kind of shepherd would leave a hundred sheep in pursuit of one? And then he tells a, about a lost coin and a lady, she has 10 coins, but she loses one and she, she 
<laughs> she ransacks her house to find that one lost coin. And it's, he tells a story about a lost son, a prodigal. And he said, there's, there's so much there for us to give because when something is lost, it, it gives us incredible clarity about what we need to be doing and what needs to be next. Am I right? Like it's all about this one thing and, and you're, you're, you're not somehow giving yourself credit or, or taking inventory. If, you know, if you lost your wallet, you're not thinking, well, at least I have my keys. You know, he didn't look at his other four children that were found and say, well, at least, you know, I got 80% of my kids. That's pretty good. It doesn't work that way, does it? All of a sudden, all of our attention goes towards that one lost thing. And in fact, the found things that you have are actually in the way. You know, you're moving, you're moving the found stuff out of the way so you can get to that lost thing. And when that one thing is lost, everything else takes a back seat. I'll tell you, um, Jesus tells another story about sheep and goats. He says, one day there's, there's going to be this, this separation. You and you don't get to know when or where or how this is going to happen. But one day there's going to be a separation and on one side are going to be, be sheeps, and on the other side are going to be goats. On one side are going to be people who know me, have served me, have, have claimed me. And on the other side are going to be people who never knew me. He just said, simply, Kristen is in his teaching, he said, you know, the reason the Church of Highlands exists is because of that moment. Because there is a heaven and there is a hell. And our goal, our purpose for being here as a church is what Jesus was. You remember what Jesus said. I came to seek and to save who? Lost. God is not worried about who will be president. God is worried about the lost. Stop worrying about who will be president. And start worrying about your neighbor. Are you deeply troubled? about the right things. Hypothetically, what if, just, just hypothetically, what if the person God is desperate for you to share the gospel with is a supporter of a different political party than you? 
what kind of spiritual doors might you be shutting because of your political comments? Stop, stop worrying about who will be president and start worrying about your neighbor. Nehemiah is prayerful. He won't act on his own, but relies on God's hand. He's strategic. He waits for his opportunity with the king. He's uh, incredibly, deeply emotional. His heart is broken over the state of things, the lostness of Jerusalem. He even says, how can I not be sad? And even though he's terrified, it is that hot-blooded, fervent passion and complete dependence upon God that compels him to act. How about you? Do you believe that God still reigns on his throne? That he has not for, forgotten you? That he hasn't forgotten about us? Do you believe that God's works are, are masterfully unexpected? Are you prayerfully, patiently waiting for the action of God? Or are you still trying to fix things with a Facebook post? Does your heart beat for the same things God's heart beats? How long has it been since you prayed for your unbelieving friends or coworkers? How long has it been since they occupied the seat next to you? I can imagine how many conversations you've had about the election or a convention. How many conversations have you had about the life-saving gospel of Jesus Christ? If God's hand is upon us, and I think that it is, if God's hand is upon us, it is for this purpose and this purpose alone, to seek and to save the lost. And when we unite with that heart of God, nothing is impossible. In just a minute, I'm going to invite a, our worship team up. In fact, you guys can go ahead and come on up. Uh, while they're coming up, in just a minute, we're going to dismiss you to a time of communion. And man, I I've, uh, make this one a good one. Pay attention to this space. It's so important. Consider what breaks God's heart. And, uh, and, and if those same things aren't somehow just, just shattering you inside, then we need to talk about some of the barriers, some of the things you're holding on to, maybe some of the lies you're believing. And as you enter in this time of communion, I invite you to enter into the, the death of Jesus Christ. Man, just go ahead and give yourself up. Those things you've been holding on to, that life you've been holding on to, give it up and enter into not just the death, but the resurrection of Christ. Maybe you've tried politics or wealth accumulation, um, Maybe it was you've tried sexual satisfaction, alcohol, or, or the pursuit of power. But we're here to say that none of these things can satisfy what is missing in your heart. There is only one answer, and that is Jesus Christ. And if you haven't, I invite you this morning to give your life to him, 
to repent and be baptized and enter into the good life. The kind of life he promised. The kind of life only he can give. Will you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for, for what happens in Nehemiah. Nehemiah's faithfulness is, is, just, is just so amazing, even though, even though he's terrified. He, he's not afraid. Even though he's, he's afraid, he still pursues your will. He still courageously pursues the course that you set before him. His heart breaks for the same thing your heart broke for. And so, Father God, help fill us with that same kind of spirit. Father God, it's easy for me, man. I, I get so distracted. Father, I, I repent because I just get distracted with so many other things, with, with pursuit of, of, uh, of wealth or, or, or all of these other things that the world claims to be important, that the world claims to be life-giving, that the world claims to be the answer. And God, I, I'm such a sucker for it sometimes. But Father God, help us right now in this place to repent of our own sinfulness to return to you, to return to your heart. And, and, and that means to have a heart for the things that you have a heart for, to have a heart for the lost, to, for, for the reality that there are men and women in this world who are dying and they don't know you. And so, Father God, as we enter into this time of communion, I, I, I pray a special blanket of, of kind of conviction on our whole church if our course has been off, Father God, let this Sunday be a, a kind of a course correction, not just for, for, for me, but for all of us, to consider those, those that we prayed for yesterday, the backpack giveaway, those in our community that are hurting and lost and broken and afraid. Father God, we have a message of hope and life and grace and forgiveness. Father God, let us share that message, if any. Father God, if we, have, if we have this ability, if we can have this confidence, it is only because of your son, Jesus Christ. So Father God, as we enter into this time of communion, we, we pour ourselves into him. We, we help us to die to ourselves once again so we may live for you, for the things that you love and are passionate about. Father God, we love you. Bless us as we enter into this space, this next phase of our worship, a deep, intimate time with you. We offer you this prayer in your son Jesus' name. And everyone together says...